Our scripture reading is from the book of 1 John, chapter 5, verse 1 through verse 13. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. It is the Christmas season, and though I have been preaching through Second Peter, we were up to the wicked apostate false teacher and their doom, and that just did not seem to fit with the spirit of the era. So we've obviously taken a step out of that. We're looking at something else. Christmas has certain expectations. Christmas is expected to be warm and fuzzy. It's supposed to be about the babe in the manger. It's about opening your heart to the love of God and precious moment figurines and that sort of thing. But interestingly, we began our worship with a very traditional, very expected Christmas carol. But there is in it some really very heavy, very profound theology to be found there. God of God, light of light, lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. Uh, word of the Father, late in flesh appearing. That's not exactly precious moment figurine kind of stuff. That is heavy theology Theology is about studying God, who God is, what God does, really knowing God, 
And that can't be described as anything but theology. Who is God? Well, in the Nicene Creed, which we are going to confess later, we're going to hear that God is a Godhead, a, a, a substance, a oneness. <laughs> God is also comprehended in three persons. There is a threeness in God. You hear this all your lives in Christian churches. It's the doctrine of the Trinity. You expect to hear it. That's theology. Because theology is deep and heavy. Oftentimes it's not preached, it's just assumed. But that's laying in the background of most Christian teaching. Why do we believe that? Where did the Nicene Creed come from? Uh, why do we assume this? We are what is called theists. We believe in God. But if you are a theist, you still have some decisions to make. There are a lot of ways to be, quote, theistic, you could be polytheistic. Many, many, many human beings across time and space have been that. It's the doctrine that God can't really be one because if you look at creation, you see many competing and fighting forces. You know, water fights fire and air and gravity and the weather. They all kind of fight one another for dominance. The universe looks like it's involved in a great cosmic struggle. How could there be one God? There must be many gods. Polytheists are theists. Uh, you could be a dualist. You could believe that in looking at creation, uh, you have light and dark. You have male and female. You have polar opposites. Just everything has a polar opposite. Obviously, good and evil are equally strong from this point of view. So if there's a God, it has to be both good and evil too. So you could be theistic and be dualistic. You could believe in deism. You could believe that all of creation has to have an origin. In fact, human philosophy has taught us that. That's a given in philosophy. But the world looks like nothing is really happening supernatural, so maybe whatever God is, God's left the building, and he's just kind of watching. I mean, deists are technically theists. Maybe we could be monistic. Theoretically, those who believe in monism are deists. Uh, they believe God exists, they just don't believe God knows anything. God is effectively sleeping, and he's dreaming us. This is the whole underlying understanding of, say, Hinduism, which 15% of the human race belongs to. Uh, God exists, but he doesn't love you or anything else, and he doesn't have a wonderful plan for anybody's life. He doesn't have a plan for anybody. But it's a theistic point of view. Maybe you're a monotheist, which we are, actually. Trinitarian people are monotheistic. But even if you have become a monotheist, you still have some decisions to make. Maybe you are a Unitarian, like a Muslim or a Jew. There is a God. 
God is one. There's no possible way you could have three persons in one God. That's just absolute nonsense. Who could possibly reconcile that intellectually? Uh, maybe you are like the Sikh. I'm amazed sometimes that Sikhism is way more popular than it is because Sikhism kind of manifests the spirit of the age, even though it's 600 years old. Sikhs believe there is one God, but that God manifests himself as every God that human beings have ever encountered. So Shiva is the one God, and uh, Allah is the one God, and anything you call God is the one God. The way a Sikh would put it is, great are you, O Lord, and one, but many are your manifestations. If you go and ask your neighbor what they think about God, they're real likely to give you the Sikh answer. You know, the coexist bumper sticker, it basically says, it's all God. You can find him in all these different ways. He's, he's playing different roles. That's Sikhism, and a lot of people today basically fall into that camp. Maybe that's what you are. But we're not. We're going to confess the Nicene Creed. We're going to confess Trinitarianism. How would we defend that biblically? That's an important question, right? Because, I mean, we're Protestants. And so for us, the final authority in all things true is God has revealed it in the Bible. If we were Romanists, we would say, okay, God's uh, revealed everything in the church. Or if we were Eastern Orthodox, we'd say God revealed everything in tradition. But we are Protestants. We believe the final word about what is true and what God has said is in the Bible. So how would we defend that God is one and yet God is three from the scriptures? Well, the way it's usually done these days, now this is not historically how it's been done, but these days, the way it goes is this. The Christian teacher will turn to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6 and verse 4 and 5, and Deuteronomy is very definitely Christian scripture, and he will quote the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So scripture clearly teaches God is one. There's only one God. Polytheism is out. Uh, so that's our foundation. And yet, when you look at Scripture, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament as well, there seems to be a threeness in God. Even starting off from the very beginning of creation, where God uses a plural for himself. He says, Let's, let us make man in God's own image. And then in the Hebrew Bible, you encounter the Father, but you also encounter Malach Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, which several times is referred to as God, referred to as Yahweh himself, that he is uh, someone who has come from God, and yet he is God. And you have the Holy Spirit, which in the Old Testament is called God, so you point that out, you say, okay, in the Hebrew Bible, you've got three 
that are called God, but the Shema says God is one, so there's a oneness and a threeness. And then you come up to the New Testament, where it's, it's very clear in many passages, you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit referred to as God in many places, and often in just that pattern, where the three will be referred to together. Uh, Craig Vanderkoy was an expert at smelling out the Trinity in the New Testament. He, he loved that doctrine. He would point it out. Uh, I loved him for it. It, it was at, at the, the root of his Christian theology. And so you do that. You say, okay, look, the Shema says God is one, and yet you've got these three that keep showing up, and they're, they're three, so there's the Trinity. Is that adequate? One thing that is never actually done these days is appeal to the biblical passage we just read. But historically, that's not been the case. If you go back to the Reformation, if you go back to the Protestant movement, uh, if, if you go back beyond it, behind it, you will see the Christian church appealing to this passage all the time. If you turn to the Westminster Confession of Faith and you look at the doctrine on the Trinity, one of the proof texts there is 1 John 5, 7, and 8. If you look at the Heidelberg Catechism, they will quote 1 John 5, 7, and 8. But it's never done today. Today, this passage is held as questionable, so we don't want to appeal to this passage, so we have to do something else. And what I just described is kind of a doctrine... I, I forget the technical term, but it's basically where you lay scripture by scripture and you lay them all together. And once you've made this pattern, you've got a doctrine. And so you've got the oneness in the Shema and you've got the threeness. You lay it side by side and look, there's the Trinity. Does that actually establish the Trinity? What would happen if someone said, as has been done, I don't think the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is the second person of the Trinity. I don't think it's uh, pre-incarnate, the Son of God. It's somebody else. So now we have four people called God. Or 25 years ago, a very famous Pentecostal minister for a while, he kind of backed up on this, but for a while said... Uh, people are made up of body, soul, and spirit, and all three of those kind of are a completion in themselves. And in fact, the Trinity has the Holy Spirit in it, right? It is a person and a spirit. So there's actually nine persons in God because Father, Son, and Spirit each have a body, soul, and a spirit. Weird, I know, but for about a year, he pushed that. Uh, what's to keep him from doing that? Um, a very famous Pentecostal minister, just within the last couple of years, has gone on record and said, you know, I don't really know what God is. I don't want to use the term Trinity. That's a made-up philosophical term. Um, I don't really know how these things fit together. doesn't matter to me. The Bible doesn't say is that okay? What happens 
when you're watching a very prominent debate between a Christian and a Muslim, and the Muslim points out that the Christian doesn't believe in the legitimacy of the passage we just heard, and he looks at the debater and says, how can you really limit God to being three persons? Now, we both agree that there is only one God, but what keeps your religion from being like the Sikhs? The Sikhs say, all of these spiritual manifestations that man has ever written about are really an encounter with the one true God. Whether you're talking about encountering Vishnu or you're encountering uh, the spirit of enlightenment, or you're talking about the, the higher power in AA, all of it is an encounter with God. So what keeps Christianity from being Sikhism, from saying that God can manifest himself in a hundred thousand different ways, and all of them are the one God, but they're different people? What, what limits it to threeness, to which the debater had not a lot of answer? It was a pretty good point for the Muslim. The Shema says God is one, but uh, maybe the liberals are right, because let's, let's face it, Sikhism is nothing but liberalism in a way. Everything spiritual is of God. Everybody's spiritual experience is uh, equally valid. What's, what's to keep us from going that direction? Well, I would answer that uh, the passage before us does that. Now, in the modern academic era, the official word about what I read in the scripture is that verse 7 and 8 in 1 John 5 is a late addition to the text because we have 5,000 plus ancient manuscripts. It's only found in eight or nine of them. Doesn't that sound very impressive? 5,000 verse 9. Um, it, it clearly establishes the Trinity, and since it clearly does that, it can't be legitimate because there was great debate about the Trinity in the early church, and if, if this passage so clearly established the Trinity, they would have used it to beat people up with. They don't do that. So it's clearly not there in those debates. It's a late addition that somebody put in because they felt the Trinity needed to be in the Bible. The problem with the official position is it's not really the truth. We have 5,000 ancient manuscripts in the New Testament, give or take. I mean, it's a round number. But uh, it's really more than that, actually. It's more like 7,500. When people are counting the ancient manuscripts, they're usually counting not just the Greek, but the Hebrew. Not just the Greek, but the Latin. And in most most of the Latin manuscripts, the passage is found. In the Greek manuscripts, of which we have several thousand, they're not full New Testaments. You may picture when people talk about the ancient manuscripts that come from the past, that they're talking about a whole codex of the Bible. There it is. You know, you open it up and find all the books. And that's not what it is. Ancient manuscripts are, are fragments. They're pages. And 
of the ancient manuscripts in Greek that we possess from ancient times, of those thousands of Greek New Testaments, only 40 of them even have the book of 1 John. So we're not talking about 9 verse 5,000. We're talking about 9 verse 40, which becomes a very different proposition. And we do have at least one early church father from the 3rd century who quotes this passage. His name is Cyril of, of, of Jerusalem. So uh, I, I'm not sure that I buy into the modern scholarship. More than that, if you can read the passage in the original, you know that the Greek language is literally broken if it's not present. Verb tense agreement, that sort of thing, is actually shattered, but if it's present in the text, then the text actually flows together. And so it becomes very hard to read it if you read it as you find it in, say, the NASB or the ESV or something like that. And more than that, it's very hard to know what it's actually saying. You see, let's. Let's look at the context of this passage. What is the context of verse 1 through 13 that I read? Well, the context of the passage is really assurance. I talked about this a little bit in Sunday school this morning. One of the main things that John the Apostle is writing First John to do is to assure you that if you believe, if you trust and cling to and rely upon Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, the Son of God, you do have salvation. There had been people who had stormed out of the church. They had turned their back on Christ. They had said, this is not the Messiah. I don't have anything to do with this. Uh, and they had not gone... Gently, they had declared, "You Christians are are misinformed. You're trusting in G this Jesus of Nazareth. He can't possibly be the Messiah. We reject this Messiah. You are you are misled. You are on your way to hell because this isn't really the Messiah." And as you can imagine, this tore up the church and left some people wondering, "Are we being fooled?" And so, First John is written par partly. To assure you, no, you're not being fooled. Jesus really is the Messiah. And if you trust in him, you have assurance. Listen to this flow of verses from the passage that I read. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So John states it. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you're born of God. For means because whatever is born of God overcomes the world. So you've been born of God, you've overcome the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Why can John tell us that and really assure us of it? Well, because there are three that bear witness. Three in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one, 
And there are three that bear witness on earth, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree on one, in one. So John says the Holy Spirit is, is testifying that what I'm saying is true. The Holy Spirit is in you. It is speaking to your heart and telling you you do belong to God. You are not misled. Uh, Jesus is the Christ. He is what God has sent. You are born again. And then as it goes on, he who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe in God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. See the, three, the theme here? That God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So it's assurance. And secondarily, it's assurance that what we have assurance in is real. Specifically that Jesus is the Son of God. Again, verse 5 and verse 9, who is he that overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So we're being assured he really is the Son of God. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his son. So there's two things really being testified to us here. You are a saved person. You're not lost. You're not being misled. And the assurance of that is the fact that Jesus really is the Christ. He really is the son of God. God has said so. You can't get a better testimony than what God says. So that's the main theme of what's being taught. And in both cases, the ultimate testimony to this, that you're a safe person and that Jesus really is the Christ, is the Holy Spirit. Verse 6 is kind of the crux here. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. And I'm reading, by the way, the New American Standard here. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood, and it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is the truth. Actually, I kind of put the two together, but nevertheless, uh, the Nazbe ends with the Spirit is the truth. The Spirit is bearing witness. That's why you can depend upon this. And then what comes next is the Spirit is the truth. He is the witness, in, again, this is the NASB, the NIV, that sort of thing, because there are three that bear witness. So he is the witness because there are three witnesses. What, what does that mean? I've watched my colleagues preach on this passage, and <laughs> that's logically indefensible. <laughs> the way it reads in these modern translations is that the Spirit is the witness. You can really depend upon him. He is the witness because there's three witnesses. How does that work? Well, it really doesn't. But in the King James Bible, the New King James Bible, the modern English version, the, the Greens version, those that follow the bigger text, it says the Spirit is the truth because there are three that witness on earth, the water, the spirit, and the blood. 
And there are three that witness in heaven. The Spirit, the Father, and the Word. And so if you take that as the reading, what John is saying is there are more than one witness. The blood that Christ shed is a testimony to you that God is willing to reach out to you to the nth degree. His baptism testifies to you who he is. I mean, God said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. The Holy Spirit descended on him as a dove at his baptism. But specifically, the Holy Spirit in you, given to the church, uh, resting on Jesus beyond measure, the Holy Spirit on earth testifies that Jesus is the Son of God and that you're a saved person. And not only that, this testimony is not only being shouted on earth, it's being shouted in heaven too. Where you are currently, there is this massive testimony. And when you arrive at the gates of heaven, you're going to hear a triple testimony. The Father is going to say, Jesus is my son. The Spirit is going to say, Jesus is my son. The Word, who is the Son, is going to say, I'm the Son of God. And he's going to say, you belong to me, all three of them. But there is only one of these testimonies that is in both places. The Spirit links earth and heaven so that there is one testimony that is in all of creation everywhere, and that is the Spirit of God. You will hear the Spirit on earth. You will hear the Spirit in heaven. The voice of the Spirit is the ultimate testimony that you are a saved person in Jesus is the Christ. There are other testimonies, even divine testimonies. The Word himself, who is now in heaven, and the Father, who sent the Son. But the Spirit links all together. And so the Spirit is the truth, and you can be assured of these things because the Spirit is the ultimate witness. And there are three witnesses on earth that share a certain kind of oneness. The, the blood of the cross testifies the same thing as what happens at his baptism, as what the Spirit says. But there is another kind of oneness in heaven. It's not the same thing. The oneness in heaven is the oneness of the Shema. It uses the exact same language as that incredibly important passage in Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The witnesses in heaven are the Father, the Word, and the Spirit, and these three don't just agree in one, they are one. And so if you go looking for a passage that meets our requirement to say, okay, the Bible teaches that God is both one and three, and it's a smoking gun, and it limits things to three, this is your passage. And interestingly, it is taught offhandedly. <laughs> if you were going to add something to the Bible, and you wanted to really hammer home a doctrine, you wouldn't really do it this way. You would make the passage about the doctrine you want to hammer home. But John offhandedly says, now I'm talking about assurance, I'm talking about assurance of who Christ is and your assurance in, in Christ, but you can see that in the Trinity. 
So uh, that, that's really kind of an odd way to be hammering something home. And I have my, my own theory about why in the early church debates the passage wasn't quoted. It was, Cyril quoted, but be as it may. There really are three eras of the Christian church. In the first era, you have history dominated by the question of who is and what is God and how does Jesus of Nazareth fit into that? In the second era, you have the question, how can I be reconciled to a holy God? This third era seems to be dominated by the question, what does it mean that the Bible is really the word of God? And what are the implications of that? But in that first era, they were debating who is God? Because, you know, Jewish religion had emphasized God is one, but you, you had the three in the Old Testament. Now in the, the New Testament, it's very clear you have a threeness. And so uh, theologians were wrestling with what that means. And there were a number of divergent movements, but the two primary ones <laughs> were called Arianism and Sabellianism. Uh, Arius taught that, well, you know, Jesus of Nazareth is said to be one with the Father. You can't really read the Gospel of John without seeing that. And the Holy Spirit has divine qualities, but, you know, God is one, and you can't really have three persons in one. So what that means is that Jesus is one with the Father in his intentions, his will, his, his sinless estate, but he's not really God. He's a perfect man. And the Holy Spirit, uh, he is just the power of God on earth. He's not really a person which, by the way, showed up again in the Second Great Awakening. A certain theologian by the name of Bart W. Stone actually taught that, and he's one of the founders of the Christian Church, Church of Christ. So uh, these heresies get recycled. They, they come back. Um, and in fact, it's back in total. There's, there's a group of people that believe Arianism. They're called the Jehovah's Witness. They knock on your door. They want to talk about Jesus. They have the exact same doctrine as the Arians. Sibelius was different. Sibelius said it's clear that it's not just said that Jesus is one with God. There are places in the New Testament where Jesus clearly is said to be God, and there are. There are places where the Holy Spirit is clearly said to be God, and he's not just called an it, he's called a he. And so Jesus and the Holy Spirit have to be people, but God is one, and you can't have three people in oneness so what it is, is that God plays different roles. Jesus is the Father come to earth. And while Jesus is on earth, nobody's in heaven, nobody's running the ship there because God is in Jesus. And then when Jesus goes back to heaven, uh, he comes back in the form of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not in heaven. The Father's not running the show in heaven, but the Holy Spirit is in the church. God is in three modes at different times. And Sibelianism would be called modalism. Those were the big opponents to the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. And ultimately, they are defeated in the life of the church, and you have the understanding that God is one, but the Godhead is in three persons. But it's interesting to me that if you think about what both of those major players were saying, 
they were both wrestling with the issue that there is a threeness and a oneness in God. Arius had to wrestle with that. Jesus is said to be one with the Father. The Spirit has divine qualities. Sibelius is overtly wrestling with that. Jesus is God. The Spirit is God. The Father is God. Both of these groups already have conceded that there's a threeness in God. We just have to define it. And so the mind of the entirety of the religious world in the first era of the church was three and one. You really don't get to a Unitarian attack on the church until you get to the sixth century where the first real Unitarian movement with teeth is called Islam. The Muslims are the first Unitarians. But up to that point, everybody's debating three and one. It's just how does that work? If that's the case, then all three groups would look at 1 John 7 and 8, 5, 7, and 8, and they wouldn't be debating it because they all agree that there's a threeness and a oneness. It's what does it mean? Uh, Sibelianism still exists today, by the way. Uh, if you've ever encountered what's called the apostolic church, they're actually modalists. And I've known several modalists. I've had several as friends. And one of the really interesting things about the apostolic church, which is completely modalist, is it's also King James only. Now think about that for a second. They don't believe in the Trinity, but they absolutely demand the only translation you read is the King James Bible. Why do they do that? It's because they see 1 John 5, 7, and 8 teaching modalism. And they think it absolutely, teetotally should be in the Bible because it teaches the oneness of God and the threeness of God, but they have a different take on that. So uh, this is the passage that really hammers home the threeness and the oneness of God. If you want to be absolutely assured that God is one and yet there are three persons in God, if you want to be absolutely assured that the babe lying in the manger is truly God among men, and ironically, if you want to be truly assured that you're in God and that God has spoken concerning his son, this is your passage. It is assurance. You are a saved person. You are saved through Christ. God is one, and yet God is three. Thanks be to God.